Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Glad you are joining us for Here and Now Anytime, where we share news you need today and the stories that stick with you tomorrow. Take a moment now, subscribe or follow. There has been so much confusion. I covered early voting and voters were still showing up unsure why Trump was not on the ballot. The confusing Nevada GOP nominating process, both a caucus and a primary. How does that work and who benefits? It's Monday, February 5th, 2024. From NPR and WBUR Boston, welcome to Here and Now Anytime. I'm Shirley Jahan. On the show today, chronicling the slide, evangelicalism slipping into Christian nationalism. Award-winning journalist Tim Alberta grew up seeped inside the evangelical church. His father was an evangelical pastor. But now, Alberta sees what he's describing as alarming shifts. Then, documenting generations of poverty and addiction inside American families and how that affects the children. The award-winning documentary Inheritance focuses its lens on a reality that is both prevalent and yet so often unseen. To start off, we go to Nevada. Deepa Fernandez introduces us to one conservative Latino voter there. That's coming up in a moment. First, just to clear things up, the GOP primary is tomorrow in Nevada. Early voting already started. But wait a sec. The GOP going both ways on this? A caucus also happening this week on Thursday? So how does that shake out and who wins if they both win, meaning both Haley and Trump? Lucia Starbuck, democracy reporter at KUNR in Nevada, breaks it all down with Robin Young. And let's remind people, Nevada had a caucus. That's people meeting and hearing pitches from candidates, then voting. The state replaced that with a primary, straight voting, in 2021. But the state Republican Party decided to stay with the caucus. Why? Yeah, so it's ultimately up to the parties on how they want to award delegates. Um, Nevada GOP leadership told me they wanted to stick with the caucus for a number of reasons. Uh, they'll be requiring um, voter ID, which is not usually um, which is not usually looked at in Nevada elections. Um, they wanted the transparency of counting ballots right there, and the results will be. They say the results will be ready mm-hmm. a night of or following morning, and it usually takes a couple days in Nevada elections because of mail-in ballots and signature curing. So they wanted to set the rules and they wanted to decide how they would award delegates, so they chose the caucus two days later. And they didn't want vote by mail. And again, Donald Trump is in the caucus uh, with the party. Nikki Haley's in the primary. These GOP party leaders who back the caucus also decreed that the delegates who count toward the nominating process will go to the winner of the caucus. Why would Nikki Haley run in the primary if the delegates are in the caucus? Yeah, so candidates were only allowed to participate in one or the other. Voters can do both. Um, I reached out to Nikki Haley's team um, for an explanation, but I haven't heard why. She did tell reporters in New Hampshire that uh, she wanted to focus on the state that was fair. She hasn't been to Nevada. She's really been focusing on South Carolina. Um, What's interesting is there are more nonpartisan voters in Nevada than either of the two uh, 
major parties. So, and um, the primaries mm -hmm. are also closed and we have same day registration. So voters could come in and change the registration and cast a ballot for Haley. Um, and that would be really interesting. She could say, look, I have, I've been able to capture independent voters or voters in the middle, mm -hmm. but then it could be uh, quite embarrassing if more people come and vote none of the above. So we don't quite know why, but there's um, right. some explanations out there. None of the above, meaning none of the above would beat Haley in, in that. Yeah. yeah. So look, uh, is there a cry of intra-party finagling here? Because the Nevada Republican Party chair, Michael McDonald, and other GOP leaders in the state, again, who are behind this caucus, which has all the delegates, which Donald Trump is in, have been indicted for attempting to falsely certify that Trump won Nevada in 2020. Yeah, there's been a lot of concerns there. They say it's a grassroots effort. The the precincts and the part and the county party chairs are the run, other ones running the caucus, so it can't be uh, uh, swayed in one way or the other. But there are a lot of concerns there, and it also comes down to who can participate in a caucus. You know, as you mentioned, Robin, it's just there's no mail-in ballots. You have to be there in person on this one day. You know, are people are voters able to have uh, transportation, childcare, time off work? So there's a lot of concerns that the caucus. Um, you know, yeah. tends to limit participation. Well, I, I saw a Trump supporter get his ballot mail-in for the primary and look at it and see Trump's name wasn't there. And he said, see, everything's a, you know, a fraud, you know, but it's Trump who didn't want to be there. Just 30 seconds on the confusion. There's been so much confusion. Um, I, I, uh, covered early voting and voters were still showing up unsure why Trump was not on the ballot. Um, just a lot of, a lot of confusion there. Mm. Um, people supporting Nikki Haley upset that she's not going to be any, getting any delegates. So the parties say they're, they're doing a lot of outreach, yeah. but voters aren't getting that information. Well, we're going to hear from one. That's Lucia Starbuck, reporter with member station KUNR in Nevada. Thank you. Thank you so much. And more than 20% of eligible Nevada voters are Latino. Many traditionally vote Democratic, though Republicans have been making inroads and some Latino voters are having a hard time deciding between the parties. Zoila Sanchez is a real estate agent in Las Vegas. She's one of many voters we're talking to this primary season, and she joins us now. Zoila, welcome. Hello, everyone. Zoila, I understand you consider yourself a conservative, but you're actually registered as a Democrat, and now you're considering going back to the Republican Party. Tell me more. Yes, well, I did register as soon as I became an American citizen, Republican. I do consider myself a conservative when it comes to economic issues, abortion, more than anything, life itself, the way it's lived in the United States. And so why are you registered as a Democrat then? I decided to change parties when Donald Trump became president. Actually, I waited a couple of years. Two years into his presidency, I said, that's enough. This is not me. And why? Well, basically, since day one that when he said all that he said about Mexicans, and I am mm. Mexican. But then I thought, okay. He said that in order to get elected. But uh, as time went by, he kept being a racist towards all races by then. Um, I said, that's not me. He's not representing me. He's not representing my beliefs. I don't think he's representing most of the people in the United States anyway. How are we going to tell our kids to better behave, to be respectful to other people when the president is not? And he's not a good example to anyone. Not when you're telling everybody to go beat up everybody if you don't like what they're doing. 
And you, as you said, you're Mexican. That's where you were born. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and as I understand it, you came to the country yourself without a visa and lived undocumented for some years. But you were granted yes. amnesty by President Ronald Reagan in the 80s. I'm wondering what you think of immigration policy right now, because the Republican Party has a very harsh stance on immigration and trying to reduce asylum claims, and many Republicans want to reduce legal immigration. How do you feel about those efforts? Well, um, something needs to happen. Of course, when I came, I was a little girl. I don't think immigration, uh, the immigration problems were as big as they are right now. People coming over right now, they're, they're mainly Central Americans coming I see it as a problem because how come they're coming, what, um, something like um, a quarter of a million per month? So some would say that the conditions in their countries are very bad due to gang violence, drug violence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. political corruption, climate change, that there's a reason why people are coming Mm-hmm. There is a reason. I think the United States should work more with those countries. That's where I'm torn apart. I, I don't know if I need to get more educated on it, but look at how, money, how much money the United States has given to um. Oh, the name of the country just went out of my head. I'm sorry. For war. It's okay. I mean, they give them so much money instead of helping the Central American countries to keep their people there. So let me ask you, it sounds like you're split on immigration, but you feel strongly mm-hmm. about abortion and the economy, yet you don't like Donald Trump, then are you going to take part in the Republican primary or caucuses? And who will you support? I am not going to take part of the primary, the Republican anything, as long as uh, Donald Trump is involved. So if Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, which it seems pretty certain, what does that mean for your vote in November, I will have no other choice but to vote Democrat. And it's not because I am for Joe Biden, but it's against uh, Donald Trump. How does that make you feel, Zoila? It's been making me feel uh, horrible because since the beginning, the Republicans should have concentrated more on somebody that would represent every Republican's beliefs. And you don't feel like Nikki Haley is that person? It's not worth casting a vote for her in the primary? Well, because since the beginning, she was so pro-Trump. And then now that she's against him, uh, she's saying things against him. She should have been like that since the beginning. Zoila Sanchez is a real estate agent in Las Vegas. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you very much for taking the time. Coming up, the conservative Christian vote, long part of the GOP base, has been starting to morph into a Christian nationalism. For journalist Tim Alberta, the evangelical church is the home where he grew up. He was raised inside the church as a pastor's kid, and now he's sounding an alarm. He talks with Scott Tong. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? 
Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Evangelical Christians have for decades influenced the country's religious, cultural, and political discourse. They are a key voting bloc for Donald Trump, the former president. But a new book explores an increasing rift among evangelicals, one wing increasingly political and attracting more and more adherents, according to the author, and the other side losing members and seeking to stay out of partisan politics. The writer is Tim Alberta, an award-winning journalist who grew up in the evangelical church. This is a personal journey. He's staff writer at The Atlantic, and his book is The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, welcome. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. You are a PK, preacher's kid. You grew up in an evangelical church in Michigan, in a conservative town of Brighton, Michigan. But as you write, you saw a sharp turn by some of your own people from your own church at your father's funeral. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I had published a book about Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party right at the time that my dad died. And so I had a lot of right-wing media kind of coming after me. When I went home to my church where I'd grown up and where my dad had been the pastor for almost 30 years, there was some confrontation. There were people who questioned whether I was still a Christian because of how I'd criticized Donald Trump. And it was it was a rather eye-opening experience, to say the least. Yeah. And after your father passed, the pandemic came. And under a new pastor, this church you grew up in, it shut down briefly like a lot of churches during the pandemic. And there was an exodus from your church. What did that tell you about the people who left and where they went? What's telling is many of them found their way to congregations nearby where the pastor was sort of seizing on this moment and weaponizing the grievance and the fear and the anger and really turned Sunday morning worship services into Fox News segments where it was, you know, very little scripture, very little theology, and mostly all about the culture wars and about our politics. And those churches, they have grown exponentially over the last couple of years because of this sort of militant stance that they've taken. And much of it was born out of the COVID-19 experience. And this growing political wing that you write about, we're going to play a little bit of a Trump video that his people played his rallies, framing Donald Trump as a figure from God, as a savior. And on June 14, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us Trump. Now, Tim, God a lot said, of people might dismiss this. They might scoff at this. But for the believers, how did they hear this? 
Well, you know, this is blasphemous language being deployed in a video like that. And yet so many white evangelicals have gotten to a place of believing in the sort of underlying message about the country being, being you know, hanging on, the, hanging on by a thread and that they need someone to bring it back from the brink, that they're willing to go along with and kind of buy into this messaging around Trump as a Messiah figure in ways that I don't think they would otherwise recognize in mm. normal times. But for far too many American evangelicals, there is a belief that this nation is not just blessed, but that God is using America to advance his purposes in the world and that therefore they need to fight for America as if salvation itself hangs in the balance. Is this, Tim, a, a kind of Christian nationalism? Well, of course it is. And I think, you know, Christian nationalism is, is almost the intersection of bad history and bad theology. So bad history, believing that the founders of this country did intend to form an explicitly Christian nation, that they actually did want a theocracy and that they meant to design it that way, but were ultimately let off course. But really... We were born to be a Christian nation and that now it is slipping away from us and that we mm -hmm. need to reclaim that Christian nation before it's too late. I mean, that's the bad history. And then, of course, from that, you get a theological mandate that, in fact, even though Christ commands us to love our neighbor and to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us and to turn the other cheek, in fact, we begin to distort any sort of biblical teaching to then justify the pursuit of power and the pursuit of political subjugation of our opponents so that we might preserve this kingdom here on earth that we believe God has given us. And that is, of course, not just a form of Christian nationalism, but it's a form of idolatry. That is really at the root mm. of what we're dealing with. There are many times in this book, Tim, where you find yourself asking how serious Christians could support Donald Trump given what we know about his life, uh, his actions. Um, what is your answer? I think at the end of the day, what we have to recognize is that even though there are some who believe that Trump has undergone some supernatural transformation and that he's really personally quite devout, the vast majority of white evangelicals are very clear-eyed about who Donald Trump is. They're under no illusions about the man's character. They simply believe Trump, in some strange way, almost has a superpower that he can fight for them and that he can take off the gloves and get results in a way that no good, pious Christian ever could. And, you know, at the end of the day, he was able to deliver policy victories for them. And so they have essentially talked themselves into a place where they're willing to ignore turn a blind eye to or even enable and justify some of his bad behavior and ugly and violent rhetoric, all in the name of preserving something or taking something back that they feel has been stolen from them. Mm. And they believe that Donald Trump is the only person capable of doing it. And Tim, to understand the contrast you draw repeatedly in this book, you spend time with other pastors in the evangelical church, to be clear, theologically conservative, and one of them heads the Word of Life Church, and it has sermons on YouTube. In the end, there will only be truth. Every lie, burned up, it's gone. In the end, there will only be truth. And Tim, the pastor of this church tells you 
The idea that Jesus is some mascot for the donkeys or the elephants is a catastrophe for the gospel and that this era will be studied for centuries to come. What is this pastor saying? Well, Brian Zahn, the pastor there, came to the realization that by politicizing the gospel and by turning Jesus into a mascot for the elephants or for the donkeys, uh, for that matter, as he says, that we are cheapening that which is meant to be a gift for all the world and that is meant to transcend any sort of tribal affiliations. And so really what this pastor and so many others that I've spent time with, they're giving voice to this basic contradiction that the kingdom Jesus speaks of is the true kingdom to which Christians are called and that any other kingdom, any any other affiliation, any other identity must be secondary. And when it comes to be in competition with Christ and his kingdom, that we are committing the great sin that we are warned about throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament Mm. of idolatry and that we have turned America, we have turned our political affiliations and our cultural grievances and our, you know, American identities into an idol. And that if we pursue that idol, we cannot love God as we are commanded to. And Mm -hmm. as we examine this moment in American life with Christian nationalism on the rise and political violence sort of knocking on the door, we do see a clear and obvious link between the conservative, white, militant wing of the evangelical movement and that civic unrest. And for you, Tim, the political reporter, you write about the power of this narrative of fear and of grievance. And I wonder if you sense whether Democrats in general have provided a strong counter narrative to that. The Democratic Party, at least at an institutional level, has really not come up with anything that's, you know, scalable in terms of reaching voters with a message that can offset a lot of this fear and a lot of the doom and gloom. And, you know, we see this even among voters in focus groups and in polls who are doing well financially, personally, they and their families, their livelihoods Mm. are fine and secure, and yet they believe that the economy is terrible. That is a sort of phenomenon that, you know, Democrats have not been able to pierce through with any of their messaging. And I think that that continues to be an uphill climb for the Biden White House and for his reelection team. The book is The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. And the author is Tim Alberto, staff writer for The Atlantic. Tim, thanks for the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, we meet a boy and watch him grow up inside a family where all the adults around him are suffering from addiction and struggling to break out of it. The documentary Inheritance won the Grand Jury Award recently at Slamdance. We talk with the filmmaker who spent years following one family in rural Ohio. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth 
getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. One in eight children in America grew up in homes with at least one parent battling addiction. Well, the new documentary focuses on one extended family surrounding one child. It features several generations in rural Ohio battling poverty, addiction. The film is called Inheritance, and filmmaker Matt Moyer spent more than 10 years following this family, and he joins us now. Matt, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Matt, you and your wife, Amy Tunsing, collaborate on this film. You bring us into the doors of a family along the Ohio River with these generational challenges of addiction, of poverty, and you start by introducing us to Curtis, this young boy, so smart, so curious. Here he is schooling us on rocks. This one, obsidian is like a glass type. I would be obsidian because it's really hard. I would also be obsidian because it's like, it's reflective, it's like shiny. And it's not really that easy for you to like, just break. Tell us about Curtis and what he's up against. Oh, Curtis is an amazing kid. just so engaged, so smart, so hopeful, and he had also seen a lot. So we follow Curtis uh, from the age of 12 to 18, so we literally watch him grow up. And then as you spend time, as you learn about the people around him, how do you think about the obstacles that are in front of him? Curtis is facing so many obstacles, and that's really sort of the thing that drew us in. He represents about 25 to 30% of the kids in his community. That was what a local law enforcement official told us. Mm. You know, intergenerational trauma and poverty. His parents have struggled. His grandparents have struggled with substance abuse and addiction. And I think he has had to confront that his whole life. Well, let's listen to a little bit more. Uh, This is Curtis, still pretty young, talking about the drug abuse all around him. I saw my dad and my mom use heroin. My dad, actually, he may not have been shooting up, but he had the needle in his hand, but I didn't see nothing on his arms. And whenever I, he was used to see that, I'd always run and hide under my bed. Mm. And his grandfather, like so many in this family, uh, says the family is fighting a losing battle. I think it's hereditary, yeah. That's like diabetes, heart disease. You pass it down to your kids. Matt, we hear so much of this, so many members of this extended family saying this. What do we know? Is there a component of this addiction actually being passed down 
to next generations? You know, that's a, such a great question. There is some evidence of a heightened risk dependent on your genetic makeup. However, the experiences and the intergenerational trauma that family members have had, that's really what we were focusing on specifically was the mental health aspects and the struggles that this family is having and how that affects the children. And you let them tell it to us, or you let the family show us these challenges. There's one scene where a mother at a kitchen counter, just lingering there, she's teetering completely high as the otherwise normal family activity is happening around her. What's happening in that scene? Yeah, that's a, that was a very difficult moment. It's a very powerful scene that I think says so much. What we saw is that very often these moments become normal. They become something that the kids are used to, that life goes on. Mm. And that's what makes, I think, this scene and this situation so heartbreaking is that clearly the mother is struggling. She, she wants to stay away from the drugs, but she is drawn back uh, because of her own situation upbringing and her own traumas. And so we see the cycle continues as the kids are around this and seeing this happen. Again, just showing us, we see Curtis brushing his teeth one night, and then he bends down to use the bathtub for water to rinse his mouth. Clearly, the sink is out. It's not working. About the impacts of poverty, you don't tell us what to think, Matt, but how did you decide to include a scene like this? Well, we included the scene because it's real. The film, I think, in telling Curtis's story does a lot, speaking to addiction, speaking to middle America and small town America and what they're struggling with, but it also speaks a lot to childhood poverty and the difficulties that so many kids in our, in our country, the wealthiest country in the world, are facing. And we felt including something like that was vital because it's simply the reality of Curtis's existence, but it's also the reality of so many other kids, kids that are struggling with poverty. And he's affected by this place, Appalachia, along the Ohio River, like a lot of communities around the country, there was more brightness. There's more life in the past. This is a place that now it seems hollowed out. This is Curtis's grandmother, Cheryl, describing this town of Pomeroy along the river. Well, since I've been in Pomeroy, this place has really went down. People just lose their jobs and had no way of making the money down here. There's nothing down here. Nothing down here for kids. They had a skate rink. You know this area. Uh, I think you and your wife both went to Ohio University, Southeast Ohio. What's happening in this town? You know, like so many other communities, I think, and especially rural communities across the United States, jobs have left. Um, there's been a decrease in prosperity. And we had a, a local pastor. He really summed it up that the community has fallen on hard times. And in that process, there has been a, a hopelessness that has permeated. And we see that time and again in the community and in the family, that they don't see life getting better. And the community itself has started to fall apart and the fabric has frayed. And I think it's happening in many places across America. One way family members in this film try to cope, try to escape, is through their faith. You focus a lot on another family member, young man JP. His body is full of tattoos of hate including one about the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacist group he joined in the past. 
JP says he was sexually assaulted as a teen. He's so honest about his challenges. How is he trying to escape his own life through his faith? JP is a person who has seen immense struggle. He once said to me, he says, I I have all these tattoos of hate and I want to move on. I want to reject the hate and move toward love. But it was always going to be a struggle. The trauma that he suffered, he was in and out of prison. You know, JP really represents so many individuals struggling with substance abuse. JP relapses and then he finds religion and and gets on the right course and then he falls off the course. And it is absolutely a struggle. And JP said it better than I ever could. He said, I'm on the fence, man. I'm, I'm straddling. I could go either way. I could go right or left at any time. And his life and his journey represents that. And finally, Matt, let's uh, go back to Curtis. Again, sure. this charismatic kid. You know, there's a scene where his family members are passing a joint back and forth right in front of his nose. And then as a viewer, I'm just praying, Curtis, don't start, right? Um, By the time you leave Curtis uh, toward the end of the film, he's 18. What's the situation then? The innocent and hopeful boy ends up very deeply affected by his experiences and by life. And he's struggling, trying to find his place in the world and a place forward. And he's very close to his family and he feels he can't break free from them because he loves them and they need him. But he also is being pulled in directions that are really upsetting. Matt, you and your wife, Amy, have decades of experience as photojournalists for National Geographic, other outlets. How did that influence the way you chose to film this documentary? That's a great question. The way in which we do our work as still photographers and photojournalists is immersive. We spend time with the people that we are photographing. We get to know them. And we really sort of try to to sit in their world, one that informs us so that we know better what we're photographing, but it also creates a connection. And that is the same exact approach that we took to this film. We just connected, and I'm still in, you know, in contact with them now. They're struggling, but they're hanging in there. And they knew all along, from the first time we met Curtis at 12 years old, he knew that he wanted people to learn from his situation and his parents' and his grandparents' situation Mm. so that they would not go down the same path. And really, to a person, that was their mission, that was their goal. And Curtis has said multiple times that one thing that he really hopes is that educators, public school teachers, can see this film. He said uh, there was a time where he went to his school And the teacher was really giving him a hard time. And of course, homework probably wasn't getting done, probably some not listening or whatever. And the teacher was really giving him a hard time. And Curtis told him what he had dealt with that morning. And uh, and Curtis said that by the time he finished, the teacher was in tears. And so Curtis has even recently uh, at 18 said, I really hope that you can show this to teachers so they know what kids like me, are dealing with, so that the teachers can have more understanding and empathy. The documentary film is Inheritance, and we've been talking to filmmaker and photojournalist Matt Moyer. Matt, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. 
And we've got more for you at our website. Check it all out at hereandnow.org. Our show comes to you thanks to the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Our stories today are produced by Kalyani Saxena, Jill Ryan, and me, Shirley Jihad. Today's editors are Todd Munt and Kat Welsh. Technical directors are Mike Moschetto and Patrick O'Connor. Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley created our theme music. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. I'm Shirley Jihad. Thank you for being with us. Subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.